Welcome to the 24th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, what we're seeing both in the United States and across Europe is very similar to what we observed early in the pandemic. And the reason is straightforward. Little has changed. The virus is essentially the same, which means that under normal social conditions, it will be transmitted exponentially. One person will give it to three, three to nine, nine to 27, 27 to 81, and so forth. And on both continents, we've seen diminution in social distancing, which is leading to where we are today. In the US, the driver can best be labeled pandemic fatigue. People can't wait to join with others in moderately large groups leading to super spreader events, particularly those in indoor sites and especially bars. In Europe, the driver of the exponential growth was most likely the relaxation of travel across governments throughout the European Union. As a result, the United States experienced its highest seven-day average of new cases last week at 72,000. The single-day case record was broken at 83,757, and deaths continue to rise, over 800 per day, and there are now 43,000 people hospitalized. Think back to March. What we talked about then was flattening the curve. And the reason was not to overwhelm our hospitals. But unfortunately, with this rapid growth, that's exactly what's happening. In places like El Paso, Texas, critical care beds are at full capacity. And in Utah, the State Hospital Association said that it may need to ask the governor to invoke the in quotes, crisis standards of care. This is a triage system that prioritizes which patients get treated over others, and it tends to favor younger versus older individuals. And with winter coming, holidays arriving, and indoor gatherings likely to increase, these statistics will get worse before they get better. It's why in the last coronavirus, the truth, and in the Forbes article I wrote on the subject, We predicted that half a million Americans will die by the time we gain control over the virus from an effective and safe vaccine. And that number looks even more likely, more than double the number of people who have succumbed to this virus to date. In Europe, the problems are even greater now 
despite the fact that they had ramped down the pandemic numbers significantly below the U.S. What we've seen in Germany is hospitalizations doubling over the past 10 days. Dutch hospitals have reached their limits, and they're now sending patients to Germany for care. France is closing bars and restaurants and considering a nationwide shelter-in-place regulation. Even in Russia, there's a surge with 90% of its hospital beds full in 16 of its regions, and the government has imposed a mask mandate for all people. This European outbreak shows how fast exponential growth can convert a relatively controlled environment into a hot zone once approaches that limit close contacts are eased. Even in New York City that had imposed very strict restrictions on people, they've seen the highest number of cases since June. This surge in cases has allowed researchers to better understand the value of masks, and that is excellent. According to a study from Vanderbilt University, they looked at counties in Tennessee where 75% of people wear masks, and they compared the hospital admissions for COVID-19 to where they were in July, and they found that they were relatively flat. In these areas where 75% of people wear masks, they weren't seeing the spike in hospital admissions, and yet in the counties where only 25% of people were wearing masks, hospitalizations from COVID-19 were 200% higher than in July. Masks have two salutary impacts. They first diminish the chances of getting infected. And second, they diminish the viral load that you receive, which people increasingly feel lead to milder cases with reduced need for inpatient admission and ultimately critical care management. Robbie, as you know, I have a four-year-old son. Uh, what are we learning about infection in young children? Jeremy, the news is positive. Not only are they less likely to become very sick, but the rate of transmission from young children to adults is relatively low. That may have to do with the fact that they have relatively mild infections, and as a result, diminished amount of virus. We don't yet know, but what we do know is that the chances of becoming ill when you have a child that young compared to either an older teenager or an adult is relatively low. Along those lines, a study from Yale published in the journal Pediatrics surveyed 57,000 child care providers and they found that these adults were no more likely to develop COVID-19 than other adults in their community. It's not that there's no risk. Everything about COVID has risk. It's just that compared to everyone else, children under 10 seem to be better protected and less likely to infect others. Robbie, on each show, we try to focus on at least one positive piece of news. Uh, what was it this past week? Jeremy, the positive news this week 
comes from an article in Science that showed that even patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 infections have a robust antibody response that lasts at least for five months. The reason this is so important is that people have been concerned that even after having had the coronavirus, antibody levels fell by three months. At least they found that in a British study. And if this rapid decline in antibodies were to happen, then not only could people get the disease again, but vaccines would wear off quickly and it would make herd immunity from actual infection impossible to achieve. But what researchers say about the data is that most people forget how our bodies work. It's normal to see this dropping off of antibody levels because we retain immune cells that carry memory for viruses and they can rapidly churn out high levels of antibody when they confront the virus again. As with so many aspects of this virus, little is guaranteed, but most likely, at least short-term loss of immunity is one of the fears that should be of less concern than many of the others. Of course, with nearly all COVID-19 cases having arisen over the past six months, we don't yet have data on what will happen at one year and beyond. Robbie, we've been interested in what's been happening on college campuses since they've reopened. What have we seen? Jeremy, as we said in last week's show, college campuses are accounting for major spread. Most recently, the University of Michigan saw a big uptick, and its students were required by the county to shelter in place for 14 days. In fact, the data indicated that 60% of all the county cases could be traced back to the university campus. Much of that, as we've discussed, coming out of social gatherings on campus, ones that obviously now will be curtailed. And as you read, Trevor Lawrence, the Heisman favorite from Clemson, tested positive this week. I think what we can say with certainty is that more and more students in college environments will become infected with the coronavirus. Once again, the good news, however, is that nearly all of them will recover. Although one of the ongoing concerns, one that we don't yet fully understand, is the long-term consequences of coronavirus, even in people who recover. The so-called long hauler syndrome is being reported more and more frequently. The Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, recently changed its definition of close contact. What's new? As you note, the CDC expanded the definition of close contact. Previously, you had to spend 15 minutes in close contact or close proximity, meaning fewer than six feet apart for 15 continuous minutes. Now it's a cumulative 15 minutes over 24 hours. 
Close contact is important because the CDC recommends quarantine if that occurs. What happened here was that a corrections officer came down with COVID-19 after taking care of six inmates. When researchers looked at the surveillance video, they determined that although he had been around the six individuals who ultimately tested positive for more than 15 minutes across the day, it happened in 11 different interactions, none of which were more than 15 minutes at a time. And yet he became sick. When it comes to issues like being required not to work because of close contact or disease being associated with the work environment, these types of definitions are necessary. But the reality for most listeners is that there is no exact threshold. And if people are wearing masks or interacting outdoors, the risks are very different than if they spend time, as this officer did, in a poorly ventilated room without nose and mouth coverage at all times. It's frustrating to me that many people find the exceptions more important than what we know about the common modes of transmission. If everyone in the U.S. had a mask on and kept social distance, if everyone who came into contact with someone with COVID-19 were tested and then isolated if positive, if people washed their hands frequently, this type of distinction might have some importance relative to our public health policy because the number of cases in the United States would be fewer than 1,000 each day, like it is in Japan. But in the United States, with 80,000 cases a day, we need to do the basics, these more minimal areas of uncertainty are interesting, but they are not the ones we should be focusing on first. It's how do we do the things that we know work. What's also important is that this may indicate that the total viral load is what is most important when it comes to the coronavirus. Most people think about infection as though a single viral particle can make them ill and kill them. What we're learning is that most likely it takes a moderate amount of virus, which is why concerns about getting sick from frozen food, package wrapping, or even tigers makes the headlines, but only accounts for a very, very, very minor number of cases, if at all. Even in this high risk of the inmates having the disease, what the videos showed is that they did not cover their faces the entire time, something that definitely needed to happen. So much of the future revolves around creating an effective vaccine. 
Uh, are there any recent developments? The vaccine trials are progressing. As we discussed, it's problematic that the companies manufacturing them don't release all of the data. What we're waiting to see in these phase three trials is the relative rate of Corona-19 infections among the half of participants who were given the real vaccine versus the other half that were given a placebo. If this number is dramatically different, statistically significant, then that will indicate that the vaccine is effective and the degree of difference will tell us even in greater detail about its efficacy, but so far none of that data is available. What the companies are releasing are so-called intermediate measures. Does the vaccine cause recipients to develop antibodies? And we know the answer is yes. Does it affect younger and older recipients? The answer, once again, when it comes to developing antibodies is yes. What still is uncertain, however, is whether it protects people and how significantly these antibodies will be able to impact large populations of people after vaccination. Germany, which is the home to BioNTech, a front runner in the search for the vaccine, has already started storing doses and they've recruited thousands of doctors to help with the vaccination process. And they have a plan, a detailed plan, about who will get vaccinated as soon as the health authorities approve the drug. Once again, the United States is far behind in this planning. Hopefully, we can catch up by the time the phase three trials are done and a vaccine is found to be effective and safe. In related news, that's not encouraging. Eli Lilly stopped its trial using a monoclonal antibody because the drug failed to improve outcomes. This is the same drug we talked about in previous episodes that had its trial stopped due to safety concerns. Outside of steroids, None of the medications that have been tested have been able to diminish mortality, and that includes the very expensive remdesivir, as well as this monoclonal antibody and others like it. One of the most common questions listeners send us is about whether it's safe to fly in the context of COVID-19. What have we learned? The risk of disease transmission during flying appears to be very low based on the World Health Organization data. As in everything else when it relates to COVID-19, nothing is zero, but so far at least there have been very few reported cases. Having said that, it's important for listeners to recognize that most flights so far have been relatively empty, but that travel at times like Thanksgiving or Christmas could be very different. The greatest threat is not from the 
overall air in the airplane cabin that goes through filters that seem to be over 99% effective at removing the virus. It's straightforward. The plane is full and there's someone sitting next to you. They are within six feet. And when they take their mask off to eat their meal, there's, the risk is no different than when it happens in any other environment. If they happen to be an asymptomatic person with the disease, or if they actually are a symptomatic person who's chosen to fly, regardless of having the disease, the risk of major exposure is great. As we said, the good news when it comes to air travel is that air recirculation systems do filter out the virus. The bad news is that it's impossible to know the health status of a random stranger who's sitting a mere foot away. And so people who want to be cautious should probably avoid air travel despite these optimistic reports. Another common question is about whether it's safe for parents to send their kids to school. What have we seen so far and what more do we know? Jeremy, this is an area of encouragement. So far, schools that have reopened don't seem to pose a major risk for parents and grandparents. The fear that schools would serve as super spreader events appears not to be the case. Assuming these outcomes hold, it would be great news for kids who, as we know across this country, are becoming progressively socially isolated and falling further behind in their academic development. More specifically, based on a Brown University study of 227,000 students from across the nation, only 0.14% were infected, and amongst the staff, the number was only 0.25%. And as we noted, kids at elementary school have a rate of transmission that's even lower. In both Britain and the Netherlands that have kept elementary schools open with only minimal restrictions, there has only been limited spread among classmates and minimal spread to parents. Unfortunately, as kids reach high school, their infectivity and the risk of transmitting the virus more closely resembles the danger that comes from adults. Sweden saw a twofold difference in the percentage of teachers who became infected when they did in-person teaching as opposed to when they taught remotely. And Israel experienced a large number of infections among high school students, necessitating closures, but very few infections in elementary schools. What's not clear is how much of the transmission amongst high school students occurred during the school day versus after school and on weekends. What we've seen in schools that have been relatively diligent, maintaining social distancing, control even in the high school level has been less than feared and not in the category 
of the super spreader type events that we've seen in other places like colleges. As an example, in New York City, random testing of 16,000 staff and students showed only 28 positive tests. Across the United States overall, 60% of public school students are attending at least some of their education in person. Germany is taking an interesting approach. What they've decided to do is to keep their schools open, but pay bars and restaurants to be closed. When I put all the pieces together, what's clear is that in-person education can be done with minimal risk but it requires a clear, well-communicated, scientifically-based strategic and operational plan, something that remains missing in the United States today. Jeremy, Iowa remains a battleground state in the current election. You said that there are people you know who believe a national mask mandate, as many other countries have done, would be welcomed. And others who feel that the federal government telling everyone how to act would be resisted as a violation of people's rights. But the growing statistics on transmission, has there been a shift in viewpoint where you live? No, I don't think so. I think uh, people remain firmly entrenched in the camp they were in before. I do think many of the people who disagree with a mask mandate still wear them in public spaces out of respect to the store they are in or the people around them. But I still think, you know, the same number of people would be upset about a mask mandate. Let me ask another question along those same lines. Next week's show will focus on the topic of false information and various conspiracy theories about COVID-19. Do you believe the volume of these types of deceptions is growing or is it declining? And what do you predict will happen once the partisan politics of the upcoming election has passed? Honestly, I think the longer the pandemic lasts, the more misinformation there is. Um, And I think this is twofold. Uh, The first reason is because people are so frustrated with how long it's lasting and its impact on their life, be it you know them losing a family member or them losing their job. Um, the second is because of the election coming up, both sides are going to spin it to fit their narrative and help them win the election, as political campaigns always do with any sort of information. Uh, part of the reason it is extremely bad right now is due to how divided we are as a nation. I do not think the amount of misinformation will decrease. I think if Trump wins, it will continue to look like it does now. I think if Biden wins, the amount of false information and conspiracy theories will be the same. It'll just take a different shape. You know, perhaps the Biden camp will tout that they're handling it better than they actually are, and the right will blame the Biden camp for handling it worse than Trump did. Uh, People are so entrenched in their respective political camps right now. Uh, it'll be really difficult to get people to not see things through the lens of their own political and ideological motivations. Uh, We need to heal as a nation uh, before we can see things through a unified lens. Although the number of coronavirus cases continues to rise, the mortality seems to be falling. 
Is that from more testing, better treatment, or, or what's going on here, Robbie? Jeremy, the answer is complex, and it's a little bit of everything. More testing, better treatment, and a third factor, which is the shifting demographics and who's becoming ill. So let's take each of these three areas in order. If you only test hospitalized patients, the mortality is huge. If you expand and test people who are sick, but not severely ill, most of them, of course, will get better, even without treatment, and the death rate will have seemed to have dropped. Now, if you test even more broadly, and you test randomly, you'll find individuals who are asymptomatic, none of whom would be expected to die from COVID-19. Overall, this shift in who you test modifies the mortality from a double-digit number among hospitalized patients down to less than 1% in outpatients and asymptomatic individuals. At the same time, doctors and hospitals are now better at treating people with severe coronavirus infections. We know that because researchers can look at those people who are seriously ill and measure their survival. One hospital in New York reported a diminished COVID-19 mortality among its hospitalized patients from 30% in March to 3% by the end of June. Researchers from NYU reported a drop among 5,000 patients hospitalized in their system spread apart, spread among three inpatient facilities from 25.6% down to 7.6%. This improvement in outcome is not unique to the United States. Doctors from England report in the Journal of Critical Care Medicine a halving of the mortality for patients admitted to the ICU with the coronavirus from 40% down to 20%. The reasons for the improved survival are multiple. First, physicians have found alternatives to intubation and ventilators by positioning patients on their stomach and letting them breathe oxygen in less invasive ways. And steroids have proven effective for certain patients with an overactive immune response. Moreover, patients are coming for care sooner. So although they're critically ill, they're not quite as advanced. Finally, as total number of cases have declined, hospitals are not as overwhelmed, allowing each patient to get more attention. Whether the lower mortality will continue as the current surge persists, that's not clear. But what we do know is that the reduced mortality is not a reflection of medications, whether they're the monoclonal antibodies, hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, or anything else that we have tested and has been touted over the past six months. Finally, there's been a shift in who gets sick and their underlying immune system. In the initial wave of cases, there was a disproportionate number of people coming from nursing homes and almost all of them had multiple chronic diseases. This was followed by the working adults who became sick when they took public transportation 
who found themselves having to work in close proximity to each other. On this podcast, we talked about meat handlers as an example. Now we're seeing younger patients who are becoming ill in social venues. And of course, the health of patients before becoming infected has a huge impact on their likelihood of dying. And as physicians have recognized other aspects of the disease, besides the lung problems, like a much higher tendency of people to develop life-threatening blood clots, they've begun treatment with blood thinners earlier in the disease for all of these categories of individuals. What's important to remember is that COVID-19 is a major life-threatening infection. It is more severe than the flu. We need to take it seriously. We need to do the things that we know will slow transmission, and we have to have hope that a vaccine will come soon. Unfortunately, what listeners need to remember is that this current pandemic is not going to end soon, and we have to be prepared to be vigilant across time, or what we will see is hospitals becoming overwhelmed once again, mortality rates rising, and the number of deaths becoming even higher than the half million that we have calculated. As a reminder to our listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you've liked the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message via Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you very much for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.